Hey folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host in the studio with me, Dr. Charles Goldman. I wonder if they heard that sound of you closing the window. I I don't know, probably not actually, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure why that's relevant. <laughs> well, it, just, it shows that we... we uh, Live what we preach. We just heat the uh, studio with body heat. Body heat. And there's plenty of it. And if we get some good callers, it'll heat up even more. Hey, so, uh, yeah, welcome to the Fallon Forum broadcasting from uh, the Cultural and Culinary Crossroads of America. Okay, so later in the program, Charles and I are going to talk about carbon farming to sequester CO2. We'll also talk about how Wells Fargo is under fire recently and probably more of that coming. We'll talk about America's crisis of income inequality and wage stagnation now going on 40 years. We'll talk later in the program for those listening on our community-owned stations with uh, Penny Ferguson about India's Chipko movement and how they are continuing to battle climate change one tree at a time. And we'll talk about the tragedy of Arctic ice. You know, if you want to go take a look at Arctic, Arctic ice, maybe now's the time because it looks like it might be heading toward extinction. But first, I want to welcome uh, Maya Rao to the program. Hello, Maya. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Maya is with the Star Tribune, uh, an author, and spent some time, some significant time, in North Dakota at one of the oil fields and is recently is releasing a book about that, uh, that experience. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, so tell us a bit about this, uh, this book. Um, so the book is called Great American Outpost, Dreamers, Mavericks, and the Making of an Oil Frontier. And it's a narrative nonfiction book that explores the uh, rise and fall of the Bakken oil field. And in it, I weave together a variety of dispatches that tell uh, stories of people who have worked there, people who have invested there, and looking at what went right and wrong um, during this massive oil rush that drew people from all over the country. And you say the rise and fall. So uh, this is news to some of our audience members. Uh, is the Bakken oil field in decline? Yeah, I guess it's a, you know, it, it, at first it was going at $100 a barrel, and it was just so fast-paced. I was there a lot during 2015, during the OPEC oil price war, right. um, as they were going through some tough times. So they have stabilized. Um, I don't want to say it's, it's not really a bust. They have stabilized, but it's definitely um you know, not what it once was. Now, well, the, the reconnaissance we've had here in Iowa, where we've been fighting the, uh, the pipeline for a long time, is that there are limited reserves in the Bakken. Uh, it was hard to estimate, but best estimates were 8 to 10 years, and that was a year or two ago. Uh, what would you say is the remaining supply of oil in the Bakken? Um, I didn't get into some of those numbers in my book. I'm not sure off the top of my head. But generally, I mean, one of the things uh, that's interesting and notable about the oil production there is the first year, you know, they produce a lot of oil, um, those wells. And then after that, it really declines. So they've got to keep drilling and fracking um, to sustain that. Which gets so more and more expensive. About, Which gets right? more and more expensive, right? Well, actually, I mean, they're finding ways to be more efficient. Um, and now with oil prices uh, that have risen in recent months, you know, that's good news for the oil industry. But um, Maya, are you, are you on a speakerphone by any chance? No, I'm not. Okay. It's just a bit echoey. I just uh, thought I'd ask. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. So, um... Now, here, again, in Iowa, Illinois, North Dakota, South Dakota, especially in North Dakota and Iowa, where most of the pipeline resistance occurred, uh, there there was a lot of 
you know, a lot of contention that this is a very short-lived project and a massive destruction of, uh, of farmland, uh, desecration of many native sites, and putting a, a lot of water supply at risk, and also the um, <clears throat> the uh, damage to uh, the, the exacerbation of the climate crisis for what was a fairly um, short-term investment. And that's, I mean, did anything you see up there uh, contradict that narrative? Well, um, I think that when there's a big pipeline like this, oil companies know that they're under a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny to do things as safely and environmentally soundly as they can. But my book talks a lot about some of the controversies and things that went wrong when they were building um, a lot of the small gathering lines in the oil fields, the, the pipelines that you need to go from the oil well to the rail station or, um, you know, from the freshwater depot, uh, or sorry, the saltwater depot to the saltwater well. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there, there were a lot of issues with spills there. One of those, um, three years ago, unleashed about 3 million gallons of brine right. near Black Hill Creek in Williston. So you look at some of those problems, um, and I think it's a fair question to say if they had so many issues there, how will the oil industry handle a bigger pipeline? Okay. So yeah, do you want to jump in here, Charles? Uh, well, you know, as, as, as I was saying, uh, as Maya saying, rather, um, it's all about pricing, and we are actually uh, at a high, a three-year high in the, the present uh, price of oil. And in, in point of fact, as we've become a, a country much more dependent on oil uh, extraction, the country actually benefits from higher prices, which of course is anathema to the consumer. Right. who has gone back to the bigger cars, less efficient cars, because gasoline has been cheap. Yeah, and it also contradicts what uh, Dakota Access uh, has been saying all along about the need to reduce her dependence on, on foreign oil and to assure a cheap supply of domestic oil. I mean, that, that narrative is wrong on so many fronts uh, because a lot of this oil, and let me know, my, tell me, my if you agree with this, uh, our best reconnaissance is that a lot of this oil coming down from North Dakota all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, is heading to export. Is that something that your experience would concur or, or refute? Um, that's not something that I really looked at um, as much in this book, not that high-level oil policy. Um, but, I mean, I was a little tell you, I was there um, during the, the crisis. It was in about uh, 2013, 2014, when there were these, um, there's a lot of controversy about oil trains that were displacing trains for grain. There was controversy about the big explosion in Castleton, North Dakota, where oil trains derailed and um, caused a lot of issues. And so I think a lot of people out there uh, are pretty happy about getting this, some of these dangerous oil trains off the road or off, off the tracks and putting more in a pipeline. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, that, that's been one of the arguments with Keystone also, which is that it, 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 rail transport is a dangerous way to get the oil yeah. from place to place. But the other limitation here is there's only so much refinery capacity in the United States that can handle the lighter oil that the shale fields produce because most of what uh, American refineries are made for is heavier crude. And um, 
so no matter how much reserve there is in Bakken, if you can't refine it into anything, right, right. it's useless. Well, now you can just ship uh, unrefined crude overseas thanks to the lifting of the 40-year ban on doing that, which uh, interestingly coincided with the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Maya, we've got to run to a break, but I really want to thank you for joining us. And I know you've got some uh, events coming up that people can come meet you, hear about your book, ask questions. Uh, what are we looking at for events in the near future? Yes, I will be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tomorrow at 7 o'clock to give a talk about the book and sign books and get uh, more into the narrative of the Bakken. All right. Well, very good. And, uh, and folks, you can check out more about uh, that book uh, online. Uh, uh, Maya Rao. Am I saying Maya Rao? I think I've got yes. it right. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, author of uh, recently, just just last week, a released a book release called Great American Outpost, uh, dealing with the uh, Dakota Access, uh, the sorry, the North Dakota Bakken region, which is which is yeah. serviced by the Dakota Access. Well, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thank you so much. I appreciate right. it. Okay, with me in the studio, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. Uh, fresh off another successful surgery, I'm sure. <laughs> now I'm taking the ear off from that. Oh, okay. Well, the, the <clears> patients <throat> can wait, right? Well, different kind of patients. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, so uh, later in the program, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Wells Fargo coming under fire. We'll talk about America's crisis of income inequality. We'll talk about how India, India's Chipco movement is battling climate change. And we'll talk about Arctic ice, a big deal, a big problem. I sense a theme. A theme. A theme. Uh, 50% theme in our program here. Is 50% theme, yeah. yes. Well, kind of 50-50. Wells Fargo being half of it. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> and, uh, true. And climate being the other half, I suppose. Uh, now, if you want to call and join the conversation, we welcome your opinions at 515-528-8122. That's 528-8122. You just have to be nice to Charles. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll have to dump your, dump your call. <laughs> right. If anybody gets to pick on Charles, it's me, and that's it. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I'm a big farmer. I grow a lot of food. I raise chickens. I raise bees. Right. I don't raise any carbon. But you're you're you want to talk about carbon farming? Carbon farming, or what's called uh, regenerative agriculture, and um, obviously, having grown up in New York, I know a lot about farming. <laughs> yeah, um, well, <laughs> you know, long, not that part in New York. Long, I long Island used to be uh, yes, it's the, true. the breadbasket of New York there City. Was, the, in, in, I, I grew up in Queens, and there was one tiny farm that was was sort of. You know, pushed in between uh, one of the elementary schools and an apartment building. Um, but, you know, it, it's an interesting concept. Um, when, we, when we look at what are, the, what are the modalities that are going to uh, have actually kept climate change as, as little as it has happened under, under expectations to some degree. No, 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 no. I totally disagree. Well, hold on. It's, it's, it's way beyond expectations. No, no, no. Actually, based on, based on emissions, we should be even hotter. But what's happened is what's... that the ocean has, to its detriment, heated up. Yeah, to its detriment and to, to our that's detriment. Correct. But, yes, but it is one reason why it could be worse. But everything is happening faster than that, scientists No, I, I totally agree with that. Okay. And if, if you think about it, what is coal and oil? Colon oil? Yeah. Colon. Colon. Coil. Coal. Or coal and, and oil. oil. Okay. Right. I said colon oil. Yeah. I don't know. You're a doctor. You tell me what okay. colon well, oil co is. Colon, <laughs> colon oil and nothing but sequestered carbon. Okay. That came from what? Dinosaurs. Well, dinosaurs, yes. But <laughs> predominantly from wetlands. Right, right. Sure. Yeah, they were put under pressure. Um, and so the point is, is that there are mechanisms on the ground to sequester carbon. Sure. And what's interesting is that 
if you look at the, the ice cores in Greenland, and I know we're talking science, and this is not the era of science. Oh, I, I still believe in science. I mean, yeah. I, every time I think about jumping off a building, I kind of reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at the ice cores in Greenland, interestingly, even before the era of agribusiness, with the onset of farming in Mesopotamia, you know, the cradle of civilization, you can already see changes in the CO2 content in the ice. So the nature of farming is, in fact, even carried on in a primitive way, which it was really until the 1800s, late 1800s, um, is to release carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the, into the atmosphere. So – but yeah, but, but minimally compared to of a course, modern of agriculture. Of course, but the point is – Not even close. Yes, I, I understand that. But the point is that um, at this point, the most potentially remediable amount of, uh, of ground that's present is that devoted to agriculture. Because one-third of the non-ice-covered and obviously decreasing amounts every year of ice-covered earth is devoted to agriculture. What, that, does that include deserts, mountains? No, it includes what would be ar- you know, arable. Okay, okay arable, right. Okay. Arable. Gotcha. One third yeah. of everything that is not ice covered is devoted to agriculture. I'm at guessing this point. Another, another third of it is developed or close to it, right. maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, and, and, but the point is, is that we think you know, only of now we know agriculture is a huge source, both directly and indirectly, of carbon release. Right. Uh, and of course, the problems with the use of herbicides and fertilizers um, exacerbate that problem. So, so I know I know we have uh, we, we have a congressional candidates now. One one here in Iowa, J.D. Shulton, who's talking about uh, part of his campaign conversation is about using agriculture to help sequester carbon That's and correct. reverse global warming. Right, and leading so, uh, leading the way in this is California. So how does that work? How, okay. how does that so actually basically, work? basically, basically, there are obviously a number of things that that can be done. Number one would be return some of the, agri- the, the agricultural land to its original state as a grassland. Grasslands are far more effective okay, than crops at sequestering carbon. Right. They're far more effective at sequestering carbon, but they're not very effective at gaining an income for a farmer. That's correct. I understand that. But, but the point is is that when you go out into you know, a place like California where they're looking at this, uh, there are farmers who are actually showing that you can increase yield – Using techniques such as, again, reverting to wetlands because the wetlands change. It's not just a matter they, they sequester carbon. They change the microbiome of the soil to make the soil much richer. In fact, they, these farmers are not needing to use fertilizers. They're not even needing to use herbicides because what they're using, and you'll love this, is compost for the most part to cover, to cover, yeah, to cover the, um, the, the soil. And compost, okay. unlike manure or nitrogen-based fertilizers, actually but they, but, but, but traps they, the carbon. It doesn't allow it to escape into the atmosphere. But they essentially have to take a crop or two crops out of production or, or at least some, some fields where they grow those crops out of production in order to do this. That's correct. So how does that, how does that allow them to cash flow their operation? Well, because they're able to increase yields by doing this sort of restorative So farming. they, they, they don't they, have to spend as much money on herbicides. They don't have to buy GMO crop so that they can put herbicides on their crop. Okay. And so, they, it's true. They rotate fields with nothing but cover plants, so sorghum. So it's, it's, just, it's, it's just old-fashioned cover cropping. To, well, it's more than that. I mean, it's, the, use of the, the issue of using compost is, is actually something that came out of studies that were done 
in California universities. In fact, Cal, uh, San Francisco has one of the most uh, rich, so to speak, compost programs, and most of the compost they produce in San Francisco is used to uh, cover the fields in Napa Valley in the wine-growing country. In fact, it's so successful that San Francisco can't keep up right. with the need and the demand for compost. People need to be using, uh, throwing away more garbage. <laughs> well, that's correct. That's correct. And, and that's... Encourage waste. <laughs> well, and, and the, the, the questions become about whether composting using human waste and being more, and taking some of the things we take out to landfills and, and, and doing composting on an industrial scale would be energy positive and at the same time allow you – because the, the compost enhances in many ways the ability of the soil to sequester carbon such that right. you find the carbon instead of four or five inches underneath but the now, surface, it's now three feet under the surface where it's truly sequestered. Okay. So uh, now in Iowa, for example, we have a – we typically have a two-crop rotation, corn – one year, soybeans the next, corn, soybeans. And those crops are, are, are well, it really varies. Um, <clears throat> prices, of course, vary dramatically. Uh, and uh, but one thing that's always there is those subsidies, <laughs> those right. subsidies that make it profitable to, uh, to grow corn and soybeans even in a bad year. So what happens when you take a corn, you, take, you, you, you end the corn-soybean rotation, you enhance it with a alfalfa, or hay, or some other crop, and, and again, you, you, you intensively uh, enrich the soil with, uh, with compost. Mm -hmm. how, how does, that, how, how does that, that additional crop or crops, I'm, I'm guessing that you might even look at a five-year rotation, mm -hmm. how does that assure the, pro the farmer is going to get uh, a profit um, under, under current conditions, under current, uh, the current playing field that's been laid out by Congress, by government, with subsidies, how is the farmer going to make a living doing that? Well, you, you have to change the incentives, and okay. it's, it's not unheard of. I mean, for example, um, there's multiple states that uh, are looking at this. Hawaii is looking at this. Uh, New York State is making tax credits to those who increase their soil carbon. Uh, Massachusetts, Maryland, Colorado, Arizona, Montana. But, of course, the big player here is the biggest agricultural state in the country, which is California. And California... By, by 2050, aims to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions to 20% of what they were in 1990. And one of the biggest parts of what they're going to do there is carbon farming. Okay. At this point, they have 58 counties in California in which programs are going on to get this accelerated. Also, what California is talking about doing is they have a huge amount of grasslands. Right. And they don't have to take agricultural land out of production they can use the grasslands to enhance their carbon sequestration. So you, you left out one key. You left out one key player when you describe the states that are that are doing uh, that, that are doing something about. Well, you mean DC? Yeah, you, yeah Washington <laughs> DC. You left out you left out the Congress. Right. Uh, and again, that's where the bulk of farm policy is determined. How do you how do you get through the corn growers, the cotton growers, the the big commodity crop lobbies that that are really good about getting their way? And uh, and really good about convincing their members that the status quo is where we need to stay. Because you're, you're talking about significantly disrupting the status quo in a way that, again, addresses the climate problem. And, I, and I'm on board with that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But politically, how do, you, how do you address that challenge? I mean, it, that's a tough question. I mean, you know my feelings about corn-based ethanol. 
And corn-based ethanol is, is exactly the kind of irrational policy that should have been gone a long time ago. Taking, you know, making corn a monocrop and then using a huge amount of it just well, to put fuel in your car to get less gas mileage makes no sense. And we, we had a two-crop monocrop right. <laughs> uh, prior to ethanol's yeah. rise, and uh, all, all we've done is, I think, maybe further, further, uh, you know, further assure that we're going to maintain that two-crop system. Well, I think— Because now, what, about 40 percent of Iowa's ethanol crop, or corn crop, rather, goes to ethanol. I, I think that if a state like California can prove that yields will not be harmed and that the costs of production go down significantly, therefore making your margin greater, then other farmers will follow suit. That's the only way it's going to work because you're right. Nothing will change. Since the 1960s when it was decided to subsidize things like wheat and corn and soybeans, which has ruined the American diet, um, this, is, this is the way policy is made in this country. Look what's happened with the tariffs. They're going to pay the corn farmers and the soybean farmers money so that they can have their tariffs. So, yeah. so, the, yeah. so, the, so Trump can ding China. Exactly. No, I agree. Someone, someone large needs to prove that this works. And if anybody like California, you know, you so don't get larger than that. Yeah, not just a large farmer, but a, a large, large state, state needs well, to and, show and again, that. Again, I think California's economy is what, the seventh or eighth largest It's the fifth economy. biggest in the world. Fifth biggest in the world. Okay. In the world, by itself. By itself, right. Amazing. Right. Yeah. So the point would be that if you can prove it on a large scale, others will follow. You're right. Policy is not going to change. The market has to change. And yeah. the other thing, of course, is to appeal to the idea this could make you free of the GMO seeds. Because if you don't need herbicide, uh, you, for the most part, don't need GMO seeds. Yeah, then, then, then you bring in a whole new set of uh, opponents, uh, Monsanto. Of and uh, <laughs> Of course. <laughs> right, right. And okay. it just shows you why capitalism is a terrible system when you have to address things of urgency that aren't war. So you, are you advocating – are you coming out as a socialist? I'm not so sure socialism is any better, <laughs> but you know the other thing, of course, is it would make agriculture a bit more labor intensive again, which would right. create jobs, right? Yeah, uh, as opposed to you know sending out your combine yeah. with a GPS running it. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to have it come over sometime, Charles, and pull weeds to be in health. Because <laughs> the compost, the the the. the uh, Fallon Farm. Yeah, what, what you describe is, is what we're doing, uh-huh. carbon, carbon farming, in an urban context. Again, a small scale, but, uh, uh-huh. but uh, at least we've got that happening. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's promising. And, again, it's important because we can't, we, can't, uh, we can't just stop burning fossil fuels. And that's, right. that's taking a while. Right. Uh, we can't just prepare for the inevitable floods and droughts and, and other, all the other – Climate-related disasters the, coming the, the our way. The ten plagues of Moses that are we've, coming. We've got to find a way to get some of that carbon from up in the atmosphere down into the soil or down somewhere down where deep, it can be sequestered. Deep, what they call occluded carbon. It needs to be deep in the soil, held in, in microorganisms that will not release it. But we'll keep it in the soil. We need to. We need to incentivize those microorganisms. <laughs> <laughs> they, they need. They need a. They need an incentive program. <laughs> well, fortunately, they don't vote, and they don't. They don't seem to care one way or the other. Yeah, microorganisms are people too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to take a short break here, folks. This is Ed Fallon, Charles Goldman in the studio with me. When we come back, we're going to talk about Wells Fargo coming under fire. More of that on the way. see fingers up and down my spine. The same old witchcraft Welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. I want to thank uh, Brother Trucker uh, and uh, Max Wellman, two local musicians in the Des Moines Metro who uh, provide the bumper music for this program. 
also want to thank uh, Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Also, thanks to the community-owned stations around the state and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can always hear it, uh, the podcast of this program on the Fallon Forum website, fallonforum.com. And you can also... Uh, you can also hear it live, of course, at 11 o'clock Central Time every Monday, either on the dial or live on the Fallon Forum website. So um, this was a big weekend, uh, a big week, rather. This past week was a big week for um, the divestment movement relevant to fossil fuels, but uh, the, the, um, the, the coalition building that is needed to accomplish anything what we saw happen this past week in Des Moines at the um, Wells Fargo shareholders meeting was similar to what we saw in Albuquerque the previous week at the uh, Bank of America mm-hmm. shareholders meeting. People came together with concerns about the funding, the financing of pipelines and other fossil fuel infrastructure, concerns about the financing of private prisons, and also about uh, the fact that Wells Fargo is the bank of the NRA. Uh, on top of that, people deeply concerned about Wells Fargo's practices that have been so wrong that uh, they've been zapped with a $1 billion fine and been told by the Federal Reserve that they um, they can't grow. They've they've been regulated to a level un, unheard of, e- even mm-hmm. with some of the other um, questionable banking practices by Chase Morgan, Bank of America, U.S. Bank. Uh, Wells Fargo has been taking it on the chin. And... Um, it's hard to know where that's going to go, but here in Des Moines, the uh, the action that occurred at the Wells Fargo shareholders meeting last Tuesday was, uh, I, as far as I can tell, it was incredibly successful. You had people on the inside talking about why uh, why they were concerned about what Wells Fargo was doing, mm-hmm. who inspired people. It was a state representative who got up and spoke. Uh, who, I, as far as I know, he wasn't planning to speak about any of the concerns that were raised until he heard some of the stories that people were bringing up. And he said, you know, to the, he said to the president, to the CEO, to the shareholders, you need to listen to these people. That was a K.O. Abdul-Samad. Mm. And, you know, outside, meanwhile, a very boisterous protest bringing uh, together a, a lot of folks, um, again, people concerned about gun violence, about prison reform, about pipelines, uh, a lot of Native Americans involved. Uh, they came from North Dakota, South Dakota, Arizona, uh, and uh, they were a very critical part of the, uh, of the whole um, uh, action, and uh, it gained some national attention, and I think got more and more people thinking about the fact that, yeah, maybe Wells Fargo is doing some things that we need to push back against. Yeah, I guess the the sad thing is that, um, as we'll talk about in the next segment, we don't have that many choices anymore. It's much easier to force divestment when you're not such a concentrated economy as we are now. As I'll point out in the next segment, okay, in the so- last 20 years, 50% of the publicly listed companies have disappeared. They've disappeared either by going out of business or they've disappeared because they've been Gobbled sucked up, up into yeah. some other company. Yeah. We only have five major banks at this point. So the question becomes, what, what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, that divestiture is, is a strategy that makes perhaps more sense than the boycotts. Well, is there any is there any compelling reason why anybody would want to choose one of these five major problematic banks when they can choose a community-owned bank or or or, uh, or a credit union? That's I mean, true. I mean, all, all of my finance financial activity occurs at a local credit union. I well, as as does mine. Right. I so don't why why any... don't more people do that? Um, I, 
I think that more first of all people are much more concerned right now about paying the bills um in spite of everything the Trump administration says the worker in the United States is worse off every year than they were before because you're worse off if you're stagnated and that's where where most american workers are well it's 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 gone below stagnation for a lot of people right. I mean, there's there was a survey that again I'll talk about in a minute about among baby boomers as to how would you come up with four hundred dollars to pay a medical bill. Most of the people don't have the cash on hand to do that. So I think that while you and I, for various reasons, have the largesse to keep focus on things like this, I think a lot of people just it's like it's just easier to just live my life and whoever gives me the zero percent on the credit card for twenty four months. Yeah, but it, I okay. go with that. So, yeah, but in the long run, is there any financial advantage to going with Wells Fargo or Bank of America than it is to going with a local institution? Certainly not for your savings, right? Because no one's paying anything, and generally the credit unions pay more because right. to, because of the nonprofit status, they kind of have to. But I think the concern is that in a lot of ways, like with credit cards, there's only a certain number of players, yeah. and. That's where these banks make a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and I, we want to talk more about that in the next segment, too. But just to wrap up uh, what happened last week at the mm-hmm. Wells Fargo shareholders meeting, do you see uh, do you see continued um, momentum toward trying to uh, pressure Wells Fargo to do the right thing on some of these issues? I, I mean, ultimately, they will decide to do the right thing if it's profitable. Correct. And if they lose – I mean, the teachers' union – I can't remember the amazing amount of money that the teachers' union, the National mm-hmm. Teachers' Union, had invested with Wells Fargo. Right. But they pulled out. Yeah. A group of uh, nuns in Philadelphia. I, I, we, all, we, we all know how wealthy the Catholic Church is, right? Uh, well, the, uh, the nuns pulled out or are, are threatening right. to pull out. And if more and more big entities and lots of average people who just happen to have an account there pull out, that could pressure them to do something significant. I think that's true. And Wells Fargo is very handicapped because they're going – with all the penalties and everything else that's going on, they're, going, they're the object of a huge number of, share of uh, suits from the yeah. people who were screwed by them yeah. you know, in terms of making up mortgage uh, – mortgages for them and you know, phony accounts. Perhaps if, if in one of these big suits – Instead of saying we want money, they say this is what we want from you. Mm-hmm. We want you to divest in private prison investment. We want you to divest in pipeline investment. That may be the other way that this happens, which is that you get some socially aware people involved in these suits. You know, yeah. there'll have to be some money because the lawyers don't want to get paid. Yeah. I mean, corporations, big corporations, are starting. Some of them are starting to do the right thing. Tyson recently decided to uh, source a big chunk of its product, its grain. From uh, sustainably s- sustainable farms, uh, but, McDonald's uh, has. Uh, but that's marketing. See, that's because they realize people well, are becoming know, cognizant but, but, of that. But exactly, and Wells Fargo has to begin to realize that as well. So, what would they go? They have a commercial saying what that would well, get people to come back. Well, for, for, first of all, they have to feel enough pressure where they do the right thing. Right. And again, it's not just about divesting from. You know, not financing the NRA or pipelines or private prisons. It's about it's about starting to treat your customers better. Well, there's no question. I mean, it's unbelievable what they've done to their customers. It's unbelievable, and it's it's it's, it's patently illegal. Right. It's blatantly well, illegal. The other the other question I would say, or I would ask, is enough with the criminal penalties. Start convicting some white collar criminals of what they did. 
Oh, no, that's going too far, Charles. You, and you can't you, put white-collar criminals in jail. Why not? <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> well, it doesn't ludicrous. happen often. It's ludicrous. I know These it is. These were crimes yeah, what they did to their customers. It was fraud. Yeah. It was racketeering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because some of those same big companies like Energy Transfer Partners are, inclu- are accusing Greenpeace and Earth Justice and Bold Iowa mm-hmm. of racketeering. Right. Uh, which is phenomenal that they would try to even get away with that. But right. it's one of those slap suits to try to keep people from talking, mm-hmm. from agitating. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see. How, I, I have some optimism that Wells Fargo will actually do the right thing on this. Not because they suddenly developed a moral compass, but because it's the best thing for their business. And right now, uh, they've got to do something. Uh, and they're under so much pressure. Um, the competition is probably loving it right now. Mm-hmm. And we talked about there being five big banks. Right. Wells Fargo is, I believe, the biggest. Yeah. And uh, well, was the biggest. Was, yeah. Well, and, and they, they'd like to remain that way. And the competition would like to see that change. And mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're going to, you know, they're, they're, it's not just protesters uh, uh, and uh, and and folks who are dissatisfied with how Wells Fargo handled mortgages and car loans and whatnot, it's their competition that may eat them up in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think they've got to do something. They probably got to do it soon. And keeping the pressure on makes a whole lot of sense. No, I mean, I, and of course, the fact that it happened here in the Heartland mm. is very important. Also, when that news disseminates to. Yeah. Two cups. Well, they moved. They moved the uh, shareholders meeting away from San Francisco so they could avoid protests. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't read the fine print about Iowa. I guess we're talking about. We've been talking about Wells Fargo, and that just naturally leads into the conversation about the incredible wage stagnation and income inequality that has become an epidemic in this country. So, Ed, what would you think is the optimal income for one person to say that they feel? safe and happy in this country? It depends on where you're living. On average, the median through the country. A uh, single person, I would say forty grand. Okay. So uh, Purdue University did a study looking at this both in the U.S. and across the globe and came up with the optimal income is $65,000 oh, well, for we, people to feel secure. What, what a, I'm so chinzy. Which makes the <laughs> optimal income for a family of four, the usual average family of four, $130,000 a year. That seems high. That seems unattainable for the vast majority. Well, yeah, and it seems high it, realistically, too. I mean, well, only because of the way we allow our workers to get paid is it unrealistic. Um, so, and that's based on on what? On an assessment of uh, of housing costs, of food costs, transportation costs. It, it's it, it mostly it comes down to people feeling like that if something went wrong, they would be able to take care of it without disrupting the family and also have the ability to enjoy a vacation maybe once a year, put away a little bit of money. So it's way above where the vast majority of Americans are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was saying, there was a, uh, a, a survey asking baby boomers if they had to cover a $400 emergency expense, where would they get the money? The most common answer was put it on your credit card. <laughs> okay, right. 45% said put it on your credit card. <clears throat> Um, 29% said they'd borrow from a friend or family member. 30, 27% said they just wouldn't be able to pay it, period. Right. Okay. So, and, and, you know. 30% said they would not be able to pay it. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and these are older people later in their careers. Right. You would have thought they had already gotten some economic security. What percentage said they would just be able to pay it? Um, 
Well, I don't know. Yeah. This is this is they only they only looked at the percentages of those who said they just wouldn't be able to gotcha. pay. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, you know, and and the tax cuts obviously were the signature mm-hmm. Republican achievement of this term, and they were making the big point of how much money they're bringing back into the hands of the middle class. Right. Well, first of all, the middle class is disappearing because the main reason the middle class is disappearing is the absence of unions and the notorious right to work, yeah. which is a right to get paid. Well, I wouldn't crap. say that's the main reason, but it certainly is an important reason. Yes. And well, especially if, if you eviscerate if you eviscerate the public unions, because the public sector is obviously a huge employer and has replaced the industrial sector as the greatest creator of the middle class, mm-hmm. for whatever that means. And that's not sustainable either. <laughs> no, no. But what's going on in the United States? So basically, number one, workers in the United States are highly productive. And wages should follow productivity. They stopped following productivity around 1975. Right. Basically, wage productivity is about 200% higher than it was in 1975. And wages are 106% of what they were in 1975. So they're only 6% higher than what they were in 1975. That's factoring in inflation. That That is <clears throat> straight up. Okay, no, not, even, not even adjusted. Right, not even adjusted. Um, and what's interesting is that up until that point, productivity and wages tended to track almost, if you graph them out, they were almost one on top of the other. That, that makes sense. But no longer. Yeah. Now, why is that? Greed. Certainly, it's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, companies have a lot more market power now. There's fewer of them. As I said, 50% of the companies that were publicly listed 20 years ago no longer exist. Yeah. Fewer companies, their ability to mark up on items is soared. Now, a markup would be that you make an item for a certain cost, and if you put a premium name on it, you get to mark it up. Right. <laughs> so the markup in, in 1980 was 18%. The markup in 2014 is 70%. Gee, that's a, a slight difference. Right. Yeah. And actually, um, there again is a, uh, you know, there tends to be a correlation between markups and wages because what's going on is there's really fewer businesses with more power. And we have the illusion of choice, but just as we were talking about before, we don't really have choice. Okay, two corporations control 90% of the production of beer in this country. Five banks, five major banks exist at this point. Yeah. And look at the look at the consolidation within agriculture. Yes. Within within uh, four seeds. players. Yeah, four players control the entire U.S. beef market. Yeah. At this point, uh, and three one, companies. One of those is owned by China by a Chinese corporation. That's correct. Yeah. Three companies control 70% of the world's pesticides market. 80% of the U.S. corn seed market. So so you have classic, you know, the, the Republicans talk about the market all they want, but the number of companies, the concentration of companies. And, of course, this was the realization post-depression because what happened in the 1940s? 1940s, you see the government actively saying, we're, we're tired of monopolies and the robber barons. We're going to regulate monopolies and we're going to allow unions and workers the power to negotiate with these monopolies to get better results. Um, and that went well. Until the Reagan era. Right. And and the trickle-down economics of the 70s and 80s comes into play. 
And more of the 80s, really. More of the 80s. Yeah. The other problem is, is that when you go across the country, the, except for the coasts, the vast majority of markets are one or two employer markets, especially when you go out in the rural areas. Walmart, of course, being – What do you mean by one or two employer? There's only employer. one or two big businesses to employ people. Oh, okay. Well, okay. And increasingly, that is Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> so Which... the worker has no choice because of where they live. They have no choice because they, they cannot they, – their right to work is the right to accept lower wages. Right. That's what it's come down to. Um, and CEOs, of course, at the top are taking a ridiculous – uh, you know, the managers get a ridiculous amount of money. So, yeah, so the the, dec- the, the decimation of labor unions is certainly a part of it. I, I will say mm-hmm. this. Uh, labor unions, they're, they're not done fighting back. They're, they're, they're fighting back with renewed vigor. We're seeing some labor unions, uh, and, you know, actually making progress at, at, uh, at developing new, you know, new, new, uh, new, new workforces that, uh, that unionize, that uh, developing more political clout. Uh, we're seeing that. Right, but they've, been, they've been demonized by, you know, successive Republican sure. administrations, by court decisions. And, um, you know, you're going to see the next one, which is this, the suit that's pending decision by the Supreme Court, you know, in terms of whether having to pay dues or having to pay the costs of right. negotiating yeah. impinge upon your First Amendment rights. Yeah. Um, and the greed at the top is unparalleled. Right. And what, what the corporations and their, polit- their servant politicians have been able to do is to turn the American worker looking the wrong way. They turn the American worker to the brown people and the other immigrants and say, they're the ones who are depressing your wages. Right, right. It's, very, it's the divide and conquer strategy. Right. It's, it's worked uh, uh, for empires over time and across the world. Yeah, I mean, in the, United, in the UK, the ratio of CEO to worker compensation, 22. In Germany, a highly productive and highly successful economy, uh, economy it's 12. In the United States, the ratio between CEO compensation? Like three or four hundred? Three hundred. Two hundred seventy-five, oh 275 yeah. times wow. what their workers make. Yeah. We've got, we got to wrap up the show, Charles. This is uh, interesting stuff. You've done some good research there. Um, and uh, I, I, think, uh, I think we need to continue talking about this uh, next time you're back on the show. Sure. Or maybe sooner. But um, thanks, uh, folks, for tuning in. If you're listening on our community-owned stations, we'll be back with a couple short segments uh, after this. Uh, if you're listening on uh, KDLF, uh, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM, thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned on this, pro- this station for some great, uh, great Latino programming, including some uh, wonderful accordion music. I always love their accordion music. I can't help myself. <laughs> and thanks to the, uh, my producer, Maddie Kane. Thanks to Juan Rodriguez. Um, Lenny Montoya, and we'll be back uh, live next Monday at 11 o'clock on the Fallon Forum. my star How'd he do me Just watch me smile Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, delighted to have uh, Penny Ferguson in the studio with me. Penny is with the uh, Gateway Dance Theater. And uh, Gateway is presenting a production called Embrace, a performance that has seen pretty broad circulation. And one that I find uh, particularly um, uh, resonates with me particularly strongly because of its emphasis on climate change. Uh, Penny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us about the, uh, the production. Well, it's um, all locally, uh, all local artists, uh, many of whom have never been on stage before, but it's an opportunity for them, uh, the minority uh, in the different ethnicities who haven't had an opportunity to, 
to be in on. Okay, a, and the stage. play is about uh, it's about a what's been transpiring in India for mm -hmm. a long time. I, I met uh, one of the leaders of the so-called Chipko movement uh, back in 1995, and this was an effort back then. It was an effort to protect trees from clear cutting. Uh, I mean, the, the forest was a very um, integral part of the life, life, not just lifestyle, but livelihood right. of the uh, people in northern India. And uh, to stop the deforestation, they would literally go out and wrap themselves around the trees to prevent them from being cut down. And that's why the name embrace. Chipko right. means sure. embrace. Yeah. The, the original tree huggers, I found out while we were researching this, began in India in the 1700s. Oh, so well before the tree huggers of the 1960s in the U.S. Right. All right. <laughs> and <laughs> it, what, what, ha what happened back in the 1700s? Uh, well, the, the, the Raja or King wanted to cut down the trees that were in, in these little areas. It's a desert area, and they're like little oasis with mm -hmm. these certain trees. And he wanted to cut them down to use for his palace. And so he ordered his soldiers to go down to this particular village called by the Bishnoi, and they still exist there. And it's a certain tribe who takes care of these trees, who feel they have, that they're part of their family. Right. And anyway, when the Raja soldiers came, <clears throat> they had no uh, way to stop them, although they pleaded, and that's when the first eco-feminist movement that I know of. <laughs> that was the 1700s? In the 1730s. And were they successful? Amrita Devi and her three daughters started by grabbing the trees. All the villagers copied her, and they were all slain and massacred. Ugh. When the king heard about what happened to his subjects, he was very remorseful and oh. came back and also realized, because they were getting floods there, that the trees had a lot of significance. Okay. So, they, so he yeah. protected them from yeah. up to now. He, so what is happening currently in India uh, that makes this play relevant? Well, in the, in the 70s. Uh, 1970s. 1970s. Yeah, i got to now cite the century. Yeah, right. The, the right, right century. The, uh, <laughs> 1970s, um, a group of activists had heard about the hill tribes up at, uh, in the Himalayas, so the mm -hmm. foothills of the Himalayas, who were um, trying to prevent all their trees from being logged away for a big sports factory. Right. That, um, and they had had flooding because they'd been... Right, deforestation, um, deforestation. flooding, sure. And so these women were trying to protect their trees, and they were also using the same right. tactic. And the, the Chipko movement, these activists got a whole lot of people and said, let's help them. Hmm. And they went, and they were successful at it's, blocking and it. And so what's happening nowadays? It's spread worldwide, okay. the movement. And so uh, there are other countries, other people that, right. are, that are using this tactic to save forests. Right. And in Kenya, I understand um, a Kenyan woman got the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh for saving trees and planting Well, maybe trees. we should do this in Des Moines. I mean, the Des Moines Water Works wants to cut down 180 trees. I know, I read that. Yeah, to build an uh, amphitheater. And, I'm, I, and a lot of us are saying, why, if, you, if you're familiar with the Des Moines Water Works Park, it's a huge park and there's lots of empty space, open space, why not build it there? 
But apparently they want to cut down 180 trees. I so, Penny, that. maybe you and I and some yeah. others need to go down there and wrap ourselves around those those, uh, right. those crab apple uh, trees and pine trees and whatever right, else they want to cut down. I, I just uh, remember taking the kids out there, and I still like to go around there and take a little walk. Yes, and we're getting together with Trees Forever and helping them plant trees on Saturday. No. Yeah. November 5th. Okay. Saturday. I'm getting November my 5th. <laughs> May 5th. May 5th, excuse mm. me. Cinco de Mayo. Right. Okay. All right. So um, And at 9 by the on Grand Avenue. And so we're doing a little demonstration. Right. We're doing a little um, kind of a skit to right. go along <clears throat> with it. And so the, the, the play itself is called Embrace, which in... Which is the the English translation of the of the is it a Hindi word or, um, or yeah one uh, Indian uh, an Indian language word me uh, right uh, Chipko Chipko so um, and, and uh, this is going to be performing uh, May fourth through fifth sixth so more than fourth through sixth and uh, again it's a, it's a production that's been shared around the country I believe right right and around the world yeah so. And so it was. It's a devised play, so we wrote the script. So and say that again. It's a devised play, meaning that the script came from the actors and the director, ah. and it's all sort of correlating what happened then and what we have to face right now. Yeah. And as you say, the fight never ends. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, yeah, it's, this is good. And tell us a little bit more about the Gateway Dance Theater. So this is not just a. Obviously, Gateway Dance Theater, there's going to be a dancing component to this right. as well. Yes, there'll be world music, uh, dance, of course, we in the, but that helps to move along the story. So mm -hmm. it's not exactly a musical when you think of dance mm -hmm. right. and theater. Um, uh, yeah, we tend to do that, and we tend to do uh, plays and uh, some of our suites on social justice yeah. issues. Right. All right. Well, very good. We've been talking with uh, Penny Ferguson, folks. She's uh, with the uh, Gateway Dance Theater in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, talking about a, a play about an issue that concerns a lot of us. Um, I, I mean, I know that those who've been fighting pipelines, uh, I have been, um, I, there, there was a movement, uh, there was a, an incident in, um, in Pennsylvania where a maple grove was completely destroyed. I mean, a, a couple, 300 trees were cut down mm -hmm. for a pipeline that then wasn't even built. No, that they destroyed that that that, that okay. forest, and that was a forest that was very productive, economically as well as as having a lot of uh, social value. Um, we've seen something similar recently in in um, in Louisiana. There, of course, have been battles over forests here in Iowa as well. So it's a very relevant conversation. I hope folks will check it out again. The performance is called Embrace. Penny Ferguson has been my guest. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Your lips were like a red and ruby chalice, warmer than the summer night. You know, sometimes I feel like a broken record, but some things just need to be said over and over again. And this is a, there's always a new twist, some new information, a new piece of research on what's happening with climate change. But, you know, what... Alaska sea ice uh, is now at its lowest level since 1850. Uh, some are describing it as the uh, Arctic having a fever, but the, um, the amount of sea ice 
in Alaska, the Bering Sea, that area is uh, lower than ever before. In February, that area was covered by 150,000 square miles of ice. That was an area nearly the size of California. The um, data we're looking at is coming from the International Arctic Research Center. And, uh, you know, beyond the whole issue of climate change, the lack of sea ice is creating problems for the folks who live in villages along the Bering Sea in Alaska and, of course, also across the Bering Sea in Russia. So, um, you know, because uh, folks up there are used to traveling from village to village and two places where they hunt uh, by boat or snow machine, it's uh, become difficult to do that because of unstable sea ice. You know, and at times there has there's been so little sea ice that they have not been able to harvest the marine mammals, the fish, the crabs, the other food that they need to survive. So, and the other problem is that because of the open water, the, again, less ice, more open water, you've got more storm surge. And that's been flooding homes and pushing ice onto the shore and pushing water along, onto the shore along with it. So, um, you know, what is going to happen? Where does this end? I mean, it's not, it's not just Alaska, of course. It's Greenland. It's, uh, it's the Arctic Ocean itself. Um, the... The reassuring thing about sea ice, uh, about sea ice melting, is that um, it's not going to add to sea level rise. Uh, that that problem comes with the melting of Greenland and the Antarctic, and that's also looking more and more serious. And uh, you know, on the flip side of that, you look at we look at the uh, prognostication for. Some of the lowest lying areas of the world, like the atoll, like the, the, the Marshall Islands, uh, you know, it's projected that by the middle of this century, that's barely 30 years away, it, it will no longer, you, you will no longer be able to live in the Marshall Islands and some of the other low islands in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Seas have um, risen by about eight inches worldwide since 1880. Eight inches. But, and this, this part always interests me. I don't, don't quite understand this. You know, for some reason, sea levels don't rise evenly. So you can have it higher, a higher, you know, it could be eight inches or more in some places and less than that in others. But again, as I said earlier, the, the real linchpin in sea ice is going to be what happens with wet, the, the massive ice sheet in the West Antarctica. Anyway, not to be depressing or... You know, doomsday for, you know, prognosticating, prognosticating doomsday on this, but we've got a world of hurt coming and we've got to do something about it. So let's pay attention. Let's wake up. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum. I'm not the guy who cared about love. I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. I never knew the technique of kissing, I never knew.